right. So um, hello, everybody. My name is Jose Matu, and this podcast is called Tipping the Scales. And every week we digest current events happening in the political atmosphere, and we try to break it down with a panel of people who are experts in said area. Uh, so today, the topic that we're going to be talking about is immigration, but it's going to be with a lens focused on DACA. And, you know, this is a little bit more personal. So this episode is going to be raw. Um, I myself am a DACA recipient. Um, we also have three special guests, two other DACA recipients who are going to be giving us insight on how life is being a DACA recipient in the United States and also an associate dean and professor at Ohio Wesleyan University who will be giving us insight on DACA and immigration and higher education. So, you know, whenever I think about DACA, um, there's a really powerful story that somebody shared and, you know, I'm always reminded of it when I talk about DACA and it's the story of Juan Escalante. So Juan tells his story in a very powerful way. Um, he tells us the day that he found out that he was undocumented. Um, and that was the day that he applied to a college. Uh, he got a call from the admissions office from a university that he had applied to, of course, and they called him and asked him to see a green card. And um, he recalled being very embarrassed because he didn't have that documentation. Um, and, you know, I remember him saying that <clears throat> his mother just started crying and started apologizing, saying that it was, you know, it was her fault and that all she wanted was a better future for her kid. And, you know, it seemed like he was being penalized for it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he shared a very powerful story whenever he was in Venezuela. Um, he was 10 years old. Juan and his mother came to the U.S. from Venezuela where, you know, life had become dangerous. Um, he recalled driving in Venezuela one day and a man approached the car and told his mother that, you know, if she doesn't surrender the car to him, then he would pull out a gun and kill one of her kids in the car. So she, of course, uh, surrendered the car. And after that incident, they ended up selling their assets there in Venezuela and embarked the journey to the United States. Um, now, Juan did go on to eventually graduate from college, but upon graduation, he couldn't work because, of course, he was undocumented and he was worried about being deported. Um, he recounted that he was in constant fear of deportation and that, you know, even a trip to the grocery store could seal his fate if he would get pulled over. You know, it, it would essentially be game over, you know, and all of this changed in 2012. Uh, that year, President Obama came out and announced the DACA program. Um, Obama said that the Department of Homeland Security was taking steps to lift the shadows of deportation from these young people. Um, and with this program to, you know, give context to the listeners about it, um, if you come to the United States as a child, when you were under the age of 16 and you are in high school, have a high school diploma or a GED in conjunction with no criminal record, then you could apply for DACA, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, DACA is basically a permit that protects you from being deported and allows you to work legally in the United States. You know, it gives you a social security number. It gives you a valid license or ID. And it also allows you to serve in the military, too. Um, Juan got this protection because um, he was eligible for it, and so did 800,000 others who applied. But, you know, we're talking about this today because this protection is in danger. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, the attorney general under Trump, or the former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, he came out in September of 2017 
and announced that the program known as DACA, which was effectuated under the Obama administration, was being rescinded. Um, DACA, like you know, I already stated, was designed to protect a generation of young undocumented immigrants known as Dreamers. And uh, you know, I know a lot of people have probably heard that phrase, Dreamers, um, and it comes from a bill known as the Dream Act which had been floating around in Congress for nearly a decade with bipartisan support. And bipartisan support just means it had support from Republicans and Democrats. Um, you know, this bill, the DREAM Act, if passed, would have given unauthorized immigrants who grew up in the United States a way to gain legal status and eventually apply for citizenship. And, you know, even though it fell short of 60 votes, which is the threshold to pass legislation in Congress, in the Senate, uh, the idea still was very popular from the American public. You know, there was a Fox News poll that came out and asked the public um, a question. And, you know, I cite Fox News because Fox News is traditionally more conservative and leaning Republican. They came out with a poll and it showed that 87% of the American public believes that there should be some kind of pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients. And, you know, under the current laws of the United States, there is no citizenship uh, pathway if you're in the U.S. Um, illegally. <clears throat> so, you know, this idea was very popular among the American public. Um, so when President Obama um, announced that the DACA program, um, it actually turned, you know, he announced it in the middle of his 2012 reelection campaign. Um. And, you know, Republicans at the time are really ambivalent about turning immigration into a wedge issue. You know, that is an issue that can be compromised on. Um, senator Marco Rubio, who is a Republican senator from Florida, also of Cuban descent, too, um, went on news networks and essentially advocated for a solution, saying that the United States need to, needs to help accommodate these kids who, at no fault of their own, find themselves in this legal limbo. Um, you know, even the great Senator John McCain from Arizona, uh, who was the Republican candidate for president in 2008 against Obama, said that, you know, we can't forever have children who were brought by here by their parents um, living in the shadows. So and I say the, I say all that to say, you know, people on both sides of the aisle, you know, really had empathy, were really compassionate for this generation of young immigrants. Um, and then came Donald Trump. And, you know, Trump really changed the landscape around immigration as a whole in this nation. Um, Trump's main campaign message was around a hardline immigration agenda. And I mean, you know, let's go back to his campaign announcement. You know, one of the first things that he said whenever he announced that he was running for president was that Mexico was sending people who are bringing drugs, crimes, and, you know, frankly, they're rapists. Um, you know, so that really does set the tone of this president's agenda. So, you know, once Donald Trump became the leading Republican presidential candidate, Republicans started looking at things in a new light, in a new way. Um, when Trump won, you know, DACA's fate really did seem sealed. Um, but, you know, even though he revoked a lot of Obama's other executive orders on immigration and, you know, uh, actions that were passed by Obama surrounding immigration, nearly eight months into his term, he still hadn't ended DACA. And, you know, a lot of immigration hawks, you know, pundits, news networks, et cetera, who, you know, are very anti-immigration started saying, you know, whoa, you know, wait, wait a minute. You know, we were promised that you were going to get rid of this amnesty. 
that exist right now? You know, what the hell happened? That's basically, you know, the questions that were in the minds of a lot of these immigration hawks. So following that, um, a group of 27 states joined together and threatened to sue the government over DACA if Trump didn't get rid of it, which brings us to early September of 2017. And again, that's when the former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, rescinded it under pressure. So, you know, over the five years that this program has been around, DACA has had a major impact on young undocumented immigrants' lives. Um, There was a survey that, you know, was put out, um, and they found over, in regards to DACA recipients, and they found that over 90% of the 800,000 DACA recipients have a job. And nearly 70% got a better paying job after they enrolled in this program. Nearly half of the 800,000 DACA recipients are currently in school. More than 60% of that 800,000 opened their first uh, bank account. And then nearly 70% of the 800,000 DACA recipients bought their first car, you know, upon enrolling in this program. You know, and the most fascinating point and the most point that, you know, I think one should really, you know, highlight and shine a beam on is that 200, as of today, 202,000 DACA recipients right now are working in healthcare and on the front lines as this country confronts COVID-19. You know, these, when we talk about who are DACA recipients, you know, aside from the connotations behind immigration, you know, they're doctors, they're medical students, their teachers striving to provide a sense of well-being and education to America's youngest generations, um, among many other professions. And many of these people, you know, don't speak the language or know the culture of their home countries and, you know, the home countries that they could potentially get deported to if this program were to end. Um, so these are people who have grown up in the United States. Um, the average DACA recipient that was brought to the U.S. averages to be under the age of six years old when they came into this country. Um, You know, so just to give you a little bit of perspective, you know, as a six-year-old, you, you know, you don't have the capacity to think about legality and about, you know, laws and about, you know, the atmosphere surrounding immigration, right? You came here at no fault of your own yet, you know, these group of people, this cohort is being punished for that. Um, So these are very energetic and constructive people who only know the United States as home. Um, so now I want to switch gears and turn to the technicality and the legality of the program and its challenges in court. Um, so the Trump administration is arguing that this program is unconstitutional and that's the basis of their argument. But the former secretary of Homeland Security, which is the department that at the federal level that deals with immigration and deals with, you know, keeping the country safe, um, in an interview under Obama, um, met with other constitutional attorneys. And they discussed what, you know, they were going through and what kind of things they were, you know, looking into whenever they created DACA. Um, so she said that, the former secretary said that they created this program with surgical precision. So in other words, you know, they were very careful when creating it. They followed Supreme Court precedent about the authority of the executive branch and also using a theory that's called prosecutorial discretion, which is used in the Department of Homeland Security on how to prioritize deportations. 
Um, so, you know, for the listeners that might not know what prosecutorial discretion is, prosecutorial discretion is when essentially a prosecutor or an agency has the power to decide whether or not to charge a person for a crime. And, you know, just to cite an example of prosecutorial discretion, it's like a police officer, right? A police officer has this kind of discretion too. Um, you know, if you're speeding and you get stopped by the police, they could either charge you or they could give you a warning or they could just say, you know, don't do it again and not give you a warning at all. That is an example of discretion, prosecutorial discretion. Um, so this agency, the Homeland Security Agency, has that same discretion when it comes to prosecuting immigrants. Um, so in the federal government and the federal agencies, you know, um, this theory, prosecutorial discretion, um, underlines why the Department of Justice, you know, can't prosecute or doesn't prosecute bad check cases, for example. Like if you go to a store and you use a fake dollar bill, you know, the, the U.S. attorney in general is not going to, you know, argue the case against you, right? Because they have that discretion, even though they can. Um, they, you know, handle, you know, cases like bank fraud, et cetera. So again, that's another example of what prosecutorial discretion is, um, so with that, the Homeland Security used its discretion in DACA to not prosecute these young undocumented people and instead prioritized those who have a criminal history as immigrants or pose a threat to national security because the agency, like all agencies, have limited funds and resources, right? So, you know, to end that note of prosecutorial discretion, it's just a tool that is used to ensure that you can use your resources, your limited resources, in an appropriate manner. Um, so, you know, they carefully built this program, DACA, and, you know, presidents going back to Eisenhower, Reagan, Bush, they all have deferred action on classes of immigrants. So in creating DACA, the Obama administration wasn't setting any new precedent with this program. Um, you know, moreover, whenever the Homeland Security uh, Secretary created this program, they got an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is essentially a department within the Department of Homeland Sec uh, Department of Justice, who advises, you know, legislators on and executives on how to create legislation in a constitutional way. So they got an opinion from the legal counsel and they said that this program was legal. So I say all of this to say that, you know, they carefully set it up, this program up, knowing that anything in the immigration realm could be subject to court challenges, so they wanted to be as careful as they could. Um, so jumping back on the timeline, after the Attorney General ended the program, there were firms, there were universities, there were corporate businesses, and even individuals that sued the administration and the Justice Department for you know, ending it. So the case ended up landing in the Ninth Circuit Court, where a panel of three judges heard the case. And after they heard the case, they concluded that the way that Trump ended this program was illegal. You know, look, we all know that, you know, when it comes to executive orders, we all know that it can be undone by the next president, right? That's clear. But the way in which you do it and you undo an executive order, your reasoning for undoing it has to be justifiable. And frankly, the Trump administration, when they ended it, they went on to say that it was unconstitutional, so they ended it, despite there being no court cases or no, you know, no court or no, you know, attorney saying that it was indeed unconstitutional. So the court ended up saying that, you know, they ended it in a very illegal way, and they can't do it just randomly like that on no basis. Um, <clears throat> there were also two other courts, one in D.C. and one in New York, who also concluded the same uh, thing that you know this 
the Ninth Circuit concluded that, you know, this program was ended arbitrary and capricious, which means, again, random and on no basis. So after three courts, three high courts in the United States, second only to the United States Supreme Court, after three courts came out and said, you know, essentially said, you know, no, this program is going to continue, we're going to block you trying to end it. The Trump administration filed a lawsuit saying that these three courts got it wrong, of course. So it landed in the Supreme Court, right? So the Supreme Court heard arguments of this case in November of 2019. And they're expected to release a decision regarding the fate of the DACA program in June of this month, as early as tomorrow, but definitely this month. Um, And, you know, an unfavorable decision on DACA not only would affect hundreds of thousands of people, it would jeopardize the very health and the safety of this nation. Um, so that was just to give you context of what uh, DACA is and, you know, the issues surrounding the legality of it and, you know, the politics of it. Um, you know, it really is something frightening and a big deal for our DACA, you know, recipients and our nation as a whole. Um, so now I do want to turn to our guests uh, we have three wonderful guests, and as I said in the beginning, two are DACA recipients. We have Tanya Cruz and Barbara Mojica, and we also have Dr. Juan Armando Rojas, who serves as an associate dean and professor at Ohio Wesleyan University. So I do want to start on in the panel with Tanya and Barbara. So uh, Tanya, can you uh, introduce yourself, and then Barbara? Hi guys, um, my name is Tanya Cruz, as he stated. Um, I'm 26 years old. Um, I work for a construction company. I run the service department. Um, I've been with them for three years and it's an honor to be here. Hi everyone, my name is Barbara Mojica. I am also 26 years old. Um, I work for a local credit union called Coastal Credit Union here in Raleigh, North Carolina been with Coastal for going four years, and I am from uh, originally born in Mexico. All right. Thank you. Um, Well, you know, we appreciate you being on, Tanya and Barbara. Thank you for being on. It's an honor to have you guys. So I want to start with you both. And, you know, so in the beginning of this podcast, you heard me uh, reel in our listeners on what DACA is and the politics and the legality of it, right? So you heard me throw statistics and numbers out, but I want the listeners to know what it's like being a DACA recipient firsthand from you guys, you know, and living in the United States as a DACA recipient. So, you know, if if, if you can give us insight on that and let our listeners, you know, hear, that would be greatly appreciated. Okay. Um, so yeah, I came from Honduras when I remember it was May, 1999, I was five years old, going on six um, that same year. Um, (laughs) I can't begin to express how much DACA has changed my life. Um, Obviously, like when I was younger, I didn't know what being illegal was. Um, I didn't find that out until I was out of high school where I couldn't go to college because, you know, I couldn't go to college because, you know, it was hard to do that, um, especially, you know, when, you know, when we, um, when we have to depend on the social to actually go to college. Um, 
I have, um, my life has changed because of DACA, um, back into, I believe it was, yeah, to, like a year after I graduated, um, well, I started working at a sweet potato company because I felt like I had no options. Um, not that I'm trying to degrade the job, but I was like, I need to do something to save money and leave this country because without, without any social, I can't do anything. Um, I just didn't have any faith at all, to be honest with you, until DACA came along, um, and just changed my whole life. Um, after DACA passed, um, I immediately, um, applied, got approved and I was the happiest person ever because I was no longer scared to drive without a license. Um, I was, I felt so happy because I could apply to jobs, um, to an actual job that I enjoyed. Um, I remember that my first job was, um, working at a partnership for children, um, for low income families and, um, I was the happiest person ever because of DACA. So <laughs> I don't exaggerate when I say that my life depends on DACA. Um, sometimes, you know, not sometimes, but all the time, I'm always scared because I'm like, can I really plan for the future if they're going to take DACA away from me? Um, I, not too long ago, I was saying, you know, I want to buy a house. I want to do this. I want to do that. But then I remembered and I'm like, oh, well, can I do that? I don't really know what's going to happen, you know, with my future if other it's in other people's hands, basically. So um, DACA just has changed my life. Um, and I can say this over and over again and that I'm very thankful for it. And I'm just wishing the best, you know, for us. Hi, Josue. It's Barbara here now. I'm going to answer the same question Tanya just answered. Um, as a DACA recipient and, you know, you... Tanya and I, we have similar background stories of how we came to this country. When's the first time we found out we were illegal? Um, I'm sure we can all share the same sentiment around that. My first time finding out I was illegal was when I was trying to apply for college. Um, and obviously I have the same story. <laughs> I realized I didn't have a social security card and that college dream and all the hard effort that you know you work throughout your high school years is basically goes down the drain. However, I did manage to enroll at Mount Olive College. They gave me, you know, a pretty good amount of scholarships. And I just knew I needed to go to college. I didn't know what was going to happen after college because at that time, DACA was not in place. I just knew that if I got a college education, at least I could go back to my country and do something better than most people in my country, you know. So... DACA was announced around, I think, July, and that was my first year in college, so right before I started school. So obviously, you can imagine, and, and I know you share the same feelings, how much this has drastically changed the lives of so many people in the United States. Um, it gave me so much hope. You know, it gave me so much hope that I was going to be able to live a life here with, with a college degree and, and really show my parents like that all their hard work was finally worth it and I was still going to be able to be I, I don't want to say a citizen because you know we're not citizens of America but I do feel it in every way possible upset you know I don't have the documents for it but um DACA just came at the right time and for the first years when Obama was president I had no fears I thought that this is it, you know, there's going to be a pathway to citizenship at some point. Uh, under Obama administration, there was really no fear. I thought my life, you know, 
you know how they say in America, the ceiling is the top. There's no like going down anymore because in our countries, we don't have the opportunities we have here. So I felt that way for a long time. And then Trump came along and did what you explained uh, earlier in the podcast. And all of a sudden, my life feels anxious. My life, and I'm sure everybody's life under DACA feels like we can't, we can't move forward right now with our lives and our American dream because we don't know if tomorrow, like you said, our lives are going to come to an end. Um, and not necessarily an end, like human end, but like there's so many things we will have to re- reevaluate if DACA gets eliminated tomorrow or in June. We're hoping it doesn't, you know, but there is no steps right now. There is no safety. There, there's nothing is safe. You can't advance in your career. You don't know. If you, I, I don't even know if I should continue school right now. You know, I don't know if I should be buying houses or investing in anything that has uh, an attachment to America because I don't know if by tomorrow my life is going to be drastically changed by a decision that a president made based on purely, it's purely racial um, because we can see that this is a bipartisan thing. And I think that uh, Trump wanting to end it is not, it, ha- it doesn't have anything to do with who we are or whatever. It's just simply a race thing. So yeah, I think that's how it's affecting my life right now. I am in a constant state of anxiety waiting on this decision. And I, and I think about all the people um, that, you know, are like us, that have their lives here, that have children. I don't have children, so I know that I can pick up myself easily in another country, but I think about my siblings who have kids here, and I know how difficult it's going to be for them to live undocumented again, you know, but they're not going to leave the United States because their kids are from the U.S. So everybody has different anxieties, but I think we all share the same type of anxiety right now in terms of DACA ending. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you, Tanya. And thank you, um, Barbara, for sharing, you know, that powerful sentiment that so many of, you know, almost a million people in the United States feel. Um, So, you know, just to follow up on, you know, uh, the input that you and the insight that you gave us, um, you know, and this is going to both of you, you know, um, you know, in the fall of 2017, like, you know, we already indicated that the Trump administration ended DACA. And, you know, it, it was a moment of grief of, you know, national mourning. I remember, you know, protests on Capitol Hill. I remember protests in front of the Supreme Court, especially whenever they were hearing the oral arguments. So my question is, you know, whenever you heard that DACA was being rescinded, I assume because it was just such a monumental moment in a lot of our uh a lot of our lives who are on DACA, you know, what did you feel in that moment? I'll never forget that day, Jose. I was in my office and I was waiting to hear, you know, what was going to happen. As soon as I heard the answer, I broke down in front of my coworkers because at that moment we were sharing an office. Um, And they didn't know what was going on because, you know, I was fighting this battle by myself. Like, I didn't tell anybody because, you know, a lot of people are not very informed with DACA. So I'm like, you know, no one's going to understand. But I broke down, Jose. And, you know, my boss immediately came to my office because he heard me and, you know, he didn't know what to do at the moment. Like, he didn't have words, you know, to make me feel better because I told him, you know, my life is over, like. 
you know, I'm sorry. You know, I told him, you know, I depend on this, you know, I'm happy with you guys here. And I know that, I know that if this gets taken away from me, you know, I'm no longer going to have a job. Like, what am I going to do? And, you know, he, he hugged me and he was like, you know, go home, take the day off. It was so many sleepless nights because I thought, and I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I love this country regardless. I know we have so many things against it, but I love this country. This country is all I know. You know, I don't remember anything from Honduras. You know, it's not that I'm ashamed of my roots. I would never be, but I'm from here, you know, and for someone to just grab that from you and, and just, you know, just destroy your dreams like that. It hurts, you know, like, how can I defend myself, you know, for something like that? But it was horrible. And, you know, and, and that's something I'll never forget. Hi, Josue, Barbara here again. Um, I was also at work. Um, unlike Tanya, I have kept my DACA status very open because I think it helps me come to terms and uh, with just being open about it, it makes me feel better in a way. Um, but I respect, you know, a lot of us can't have that openness, especially if you're surrounded by coworkers who you may feel do not share sympathy with you, right? Um, but I was at work that day, and we have a TV at one of our branches at Coastal, and um, I'm, witness I'm witnessing happening, you know, through the news with my manager. And just like Tanya expressed, I also broke down. Um, I could not continue my work day. Um, I remember that I went on my computer and started looking up jobs in Mexico because I was like, yep, well, you know, my life is coming to an end here and I have to find a way to, to live somewhere else, you know, even if that means that I can't see my family anymore, you know, because if we go back to our countries, since our parents are undocumented, we can't travel back here. So we lose, we're not only losing our dreams of careers and, you know, homes that we can own and cars that we can drive, we're losing our families. Our parents have to stay back in this country because they have no other choice because they don't have the education that we have. Meanwhile, we can pursue our dreams in other countries, maybe not the best way, but you know, at least in Mexico with an education, I can live somewhat okay. But that comes with the sacrifice of not seeing my parents for a long time, you know, because I don't know if I'll be able to come back to this country um, since I came here illegally and I broke the law at five years old. So uh, obviously, I don't think none of us can forget that day. I don't think none of us can really explain how we felt that day. Um, and I, and I, I hope that we don't have to feel that again. I hope that tomorrow or this month, we don't get that same feeling again, because it's, it's an anxiety that I don't wish on anybody, you know? Um, I think there's different levels of anxieties that people feel of throughout different, you know, circumstances of life. But I don't think that a lot of people can understand this level of anxiety because we've been on this program going, what, eight years, I think? That's eight years that we have had to, to build a life. I mean, we all, I mean, here's Tanya, you know, independent. I'm also very independent from my parents. I mean, we've, we've worked really, really hard to create this future. And then to think that those eight years of hard work 
are going to be taken from us. It's just, I, I can't begin to explain, you know, how I will feel and how I will react to this new decision that's coming soon. Absolutely. And, you know, I thank you and again, Barbara and Tanya for, you know, sharing this powerful, you know, life story. It's not easy at all. So, you know, it, you know, it really is moving that, you know, you guys are coming on into, you know, the show and having to, and podcast and having to relive, you know, those moments. You know, I, I also am a DACA recipient, as I said, and I remember the moment too, you know, I was walking back from classes and I got a message from, um, from one of my professors, not professors, one of my uh, scholarship uh, coordinators. Her name is Margaret Turlington. You know, I'm on a scholarship here at Ohio Wilson, and she is the director of the scholarship. And, you know, she, I remember her sending me a message saying, you know, if you need anything, it didn't really have much context, but she said, if you need anything, you know, please let us know you're, you're not in this alone. You know, it, it was words and expressions of, you know, unity saying that, you know, basically I, I have your back, right? And there's resources in our office that can help you. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I just remember being confused, right? I was walking down the J, which is, you know, a walkway uh, at a university, going back to my dorm at 4 p.m. after classes, you know, very tired. And I remember, you know, being confused. I didn't even send her a message back. And then I, I looked on, you know, I have Twitter. So, you know, I'm always on Twitter. So then I looked and my entire Twitter feed was full of hashtags, you know, which said defend DACA. So I was like, oh my goodness. I clicked on it. And then it was the video of the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, rescinding the program. You know, it, it was a moment where I felt ashamed. You know, I'm not ashamed to be a Latino. I'm not ashamed, like you said, to be, you know, have Hispanic roots. But that was a moment where I felt ashamed. You know, I felt like a second class citizen in this country having to, you know, fight tooth and nail for the most basic, you know, basic opportunities like a driver's license, you know, like a social security working, contributing to the United States economy. I felt ashamed, you know, and I remember not talking to anybody that day and just locking myself in my room. You know, I, I didn't break down crying, but, you know, because I was dreading this, I knew it, were, it was going to happen because, you know, Trump was very vocal about that, but I just didn't know when. So it did feel like a gut punch to me. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, like you said, right, rightly pointed out, you know, nobody can ever forget that moment. You know, I've been a lot more vocal about it, you know, as you beautifully stated, you know, I'm the student body president at my university now, and I have a huge platform, right? And I came to terms that it's best to be open about it, because we don't know who is also in the shadows ashamed to be essentially a second-class citizen in this country. I remember doing an op-ed with the newspaper at my university, which is the longest-running newspaper from a college in Ohio. And I sat down and I did an interview because, you know, it was a time to come forward and just, you know, lift other people up. Because when people hear your stories, Tanya and Barbara and my story, you know, it gives them a sense of that you see them, you know. It really does. And it's empowering. And, you know, once we get back, I'm a senior in college. Once we get back, you know, I, I plan to, you know, use my platform because there's a quote that I'm never going to forget. And I live by this whenever I'm in leadership positions, which is, you know, you may be the first to do many things. And, you know, God knows that, you know, the rate for Latinas that go to college that are undocumented is 1.7%. And for men who go to college that are undocumented is significantly, not significantly, but a little bit higher. It's like 3%, right? Which is, you know, in and of itself, a horror, right? 
Um, <clears throat> so using our platforms, telling our messages can, and our stories can definitely, you know, go a long way and telling people that we see you. Right. Um, so with that, you know, I thank you both for sharing your powerful stories. Um, you know, I really hope that we don't have to relive this horrendous, you know, reality once we anticipate this decision. You know, it really is like a cloud over our heads um, at every moment. It affects every decision that we make. You know, should I get this job? You know, what if my DACA ends tomorrow? Literally, you know, it's a cloud over your head and it's an anxiety that can't, you know, be explained. Um, so I do thank you both. Um, so now I want to turn to our last guest, Dr. Juan Armando Rojas. Um, you know, I thank you for being on today, um, Juan. Um, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, Jose, I thank you for the invitation and, uh, and I commend you for, for putting together this uh, podcast, this conversation. I also want to thank Tanya and Barbara for sharing their testimony. It's very important because as you have mentioned in the, in the, in the first part of this uh, conversation, uh, being able to speak out, being able to uh, be opening path for the people that are coming behind us, it's going to be crucial from here on. And um, what we're seeing right now, for instance, in our country, it's, it's a result of this, of all this uh, the division is that we have experienced in the, in the past three or four years. Um, I am Dr. Juan Armando Rojas. I have been teaching at Ohio Wesleyan University for 16 years. I'm a professor of Latin American literature and Spanish. And I also have two administrative roles, the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, for which I respond to the academic provost, and the Chief Diversity Officer, for which I re respond to the president. Uh, mainly, uh, my role here is to, according to the diversity, equity, and inclusion policy statement that uh, all faculty members at Ohio Wesleyan voted in favor for, um, my role is to oversee the implementation of the DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion policy, and to serve as a resource for diversity, equity, and inclusion issues on campus. I advise people about hiring, recruiting, retention, promotion, pay, tenure, working conditions, and educational programs and facilities, and uh, as well, that includes legal issues. Um, I, uh, one of my main goals also is to make sure that we can continue uh, providing uh, consultation and training for faculty and staff when it comes to inclusivity and sensitivity. Because at the end, or from the beginning at the end, we're um, higher ed education. And what do we do? Just like businesses, their main purpose is to make money. Our main purpose as a university is to educate students to make sure that our students follow our, our, our mission, which, are, which is to become world citizens. And, and, and that includes to be inclusive, to be understandable of, uh, of all people of this world and, 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 and to make sure that they can create critical minds. And that part, it's crucial. Why is it crucial? Because creating criti crit critical minds, creative minds, means that we're going to move forward on questioning the policies, questioning the language, 
questioning the language in order to understand it better, in order to be able to read the policies that are created in our country and, and, and be able to modify them, be able to, through our vote and our persistence, make it inclusive and democratic for everyone. And when I say here, everyone, I'm, I'm talking beyond what's been uh, a very used and abused uh, phrase, which is melting pot. Because really melting pot is something where you put different ingredients or different people in this case to create one product. And really what we're trying to do here in this 21st century in our nation is to create plurality, where if we're truly are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, that means that we're going to be including all voices, all backgrounds, all people coming from different countries, and be able to accept them and respect them. Uh, which is why it's so important for universities across the nation to diversify their curricula and to be able to hire faculty and staff from different backgrounds, be able to include those from underrepresented groups so we can better serve our students. Uh, Jose, I'm sorry. I, no, you're good. You have a question uh, that I, or a part that I didn't fulfill uh, or, or answer? Um, no, I think you touched on, you know, a lot of the questions that I had and, you know, you really gave us insight on how it is to be, you know, the perspective of a professor and a dean who works, you know, with the Hispanic community. Um, so I, I do have, you know, a particular question as it relates to DACA recipients or just like the immigrant community in general. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about the students that, you know, you've experienced with who are DACA recipients or part of the immigrant com uh, community, or, you know, maybe they're Hispanics and they have, you know, family who are immigrants and who are also enrolled in DACA. Yes. Um, uh, just a brief, uh, a few seconds to explain. I, I'm of course from a different generation and uh, I'm, I'm the result of a different program, which is the Paisano program. When uh, the United States uh, offered the possibility for those that work, uh, that worked in factories and on, and, uh, on the fields to uh, get the, the 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 green card for for their relatives. So when I was seven or eight years old, living in uh, Ciudad Juarez, border town with El Paso, I received my my green card and, and was told that I had to be living in El Paso, Texas, and. And then I continued studying in, in Ciudad Juarez because I really, really enjoyed my, my, my life in Juarez. But when, when uh, and this is where I'm going, where, when it came to studying for, or for, for college, that's when I decided to, to move to El Paso. Uh, I wanted to complete my studies in, in, in the United States. I wanted to be able to really complete my dreams we we all grew up because of uh popular culture or or, or different different mediums uh understood that the, the united states has been for many of us the land of opportunity and 
And we want to make sure that opportunity or opportunities are open for all of us coming from different backgrounds and different countries. Having said that, I remember in 2017 when the current president started using very divisive and very violent language and, and DACA was, was the DACA group was one of the groups that received this, this uh, very harsh, very violent language. And uh, here at Ohio Wesleyan, we, we, we had a protest. And I remember um, when I had my opportunity to, to address the, the, the group, I, I asked, where is the people? Because I, I would have loved to see many, many more people people in, in, in that protest, where, where is the people in, the, in this university? If we are truly here for liberty, fighting for liberty, for, for critical thinking, for creative, to create uh, amazing, uh, creative and critical thinkers, where are they? And I even asked the question, does one of our DACA students in the nation has to be violently slaughtered in order to for people to open their eyes. And it seems like we're, we're back again in the same spot. That, that's why the protests are happening in the country right now. Back then, back then and back in 2017, when, when, when we all across the nation, universities were having this protest, something that amazing, something amazing that happened. Were the presidents getting together to draft those amazing uh, letters to senators or statements defending DACA. And not just defending DACA, but committing to having resources for DACA uh, youth that wanted to continue their studies in higher ed education. For instance, in, in, in our case, the Ohio Five Universities, which is uh, Kenyon College, the College of Worcester, Oberlin College, Denison University, and Ohio Wesleyan University. The five presidents put together this, this document that was sent to Senator Robert Portman, or Rob Portman, requesting him to use his political strength and wiseness to be able to defend DACA students in Ohio. And um, amazingly, I'm, I sincerely don't recall Portman doing much about it, but, but uh, once again, as I stated, universities did. And I can tell you that in the, uh, in the last couple of years, we have had some of our DACA students here at Ohio Wesleyan graduating. Um, I can tell you that this year, uh, May uh, 2020, we had our first uh, female DACA student graduating from Ohio Wesleyan student. Uh, being a small liberal arts college, we don't have many DACA students as uh, larger institutions do. Uh, we probably have four or five coming from different countries, most of them from Latin America, uh, and I believe one from Africa as well. Uh, which is something amazing, and, 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 and which, what, why is it amazing? Because we, we, we are doing what we can as an institution to be able to move forward. If every single higher ed institution 
puts the efforts, the commitment, and, and, and the resources and make them available for the DACA students, then we're going somewhere. That means that we're creating a force that definitely can help the students become what the current president is talking about when he says a great country. Because what he himself needs to understand is that by dividing the country, we will never become a great country. By dividing the country, we were just going to become uh, a very divisive, very violent country. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it right now. The word great, if you put it by itself, it doesn't really mean anything. And that's precisely what he, was, he has been doing, using the word great in order to keep us misinformed. Let me touch, for instance, in, 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 in three words, because back then we were able to invite uh, Squire Joe Mass from uh, Columbus, Ohio, to offer the Ohio Wesleyan community information about DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood, Childhood Arrivals. And he was talking about how politicians were playing with the word undocumented and illegal. And they kept us there, right? Going back and forth, back and forth, like a tennis match. When sincerely, he was saying, where we need to focus is in our students, in our youth, in our DACA youth, because what they, many of them are really undocumentable. And they're undocumentable because many of them arrive to this country without documents. And so that doesn't mean that they're illegal here or undocumented. That means that they need to be allowed to have documents. Uh, DACA youth are here to work. DACA youth, as Tani and Barbara and you, Jose, mentioned, are here because you have dreams and you need and must have the opportunities to be able to build your dreams. Thank you so much. And, you know, that everything that you just said was so moving and so powerful, um, you know, and it really does lead me to conclude and, you know, emphasize the point that elections matter, you know, elections matter in 2020 in November and five months. Um, there's so much on the line, you know, immigration justice is on the line. Criminal justice justice is on the ballot in 2020, you know, whether the very, like, you know, the very soul of this nation is on the ballot in 2020. And, you know, I hope that, you know, our Hispanic community and, you know, just communities at large will turn out and vote like their lives depend on it because it literally does. You know, we've seen the divisiveness, as you pointed out, rightly pointed out in this country, you know, that that's not who we are, right? We've always been able to progress on, you know, the ideals of this country, even though we have not reached them, you know, we've been able to work towards them and divisiveness and, you know, pitting people against each other, our immigrant community against, you know, the American people using very dangerous language, like you indicated, you know, you know, that, that, that hurts us and that exposes the wounds of America. You know, one of my favorite politicians said that right now, in this current moment, this is an inflection point in America, a moment in time where, you know, you know, America really is, you know, being exposed for, you know, the injustices that have been lying underneath it, you know, and 
it is scary and it is, you know, unfortunate that, you know, with so much approval from the DACA community and from the public community in terms of creating a pathway to citizenship, it, it has failed many times, you know. And that leads me to the next point, which is legislation. Um, <clears throat> frankly, I don't have any hope, at least with this current administration, that there is going to be legislation that's going to be proposed, not only because it's an election year, but also because, you know, they've tried before. Um, you know, people understand that this issue is not a controversial issue, at least DACA in particular. You know, like I indicated that, you know, Republican senators in the past have advocated for this, you know, gone on news networks and advocated for this. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes in politics, and, you know, unfortunately, I've learned this as my major is political science, you know, whenever you have a very popular issue, people and those in politics try to attach unpopular issues with it, understanding that it's popular. And that's when it collapses. And that's what we saw in 2018 and 2017 when they tried to pass the DACA, uh, you know, the DREAM Act. They saw that, you know, there was a border wall that was attached to it. There was a whole bunch of other issues that weren't pertaining to DACA or DREAMers that were attached and that ultimately failed. Um, so frankly, and I think it's justifiable for a lot of people that don't have hope, right? And our hope relies in nine people at this moment. Our hope for literally the essence of who we are, our very existence in this country of who we are, relies on nine people. And we just hope and we pray that they can see our humanity. You know, we, we hope and pray that they can see that we're an integral part of the fabric of America. We you know, pay taxes, which is a very big misconception amongst immigrants, but in the DACA, uh, the DACA um, cohort too. Um, you know, so we hope for favorable news. Um, but, you know, everything that you said, you know, rings so true to a lot of our ears when we hear it. It rings so true. And it's very unfortunate whenever we look at the statistics surrounding DACA recipients and just undocumented people in general as it relates to college and others in Georgia, for example. And in many other southern states, I live in the south, so do Tanya and Barbara, you know, there are laws, there are literally laws that prohibit undocumented students to apply to university, to state universities. And there are laws that prohibit you from receiving funds, right? You know, currently, you know, a lot of people also say, and, you know, this is the last point that I want to address, but I, a lot of people also say, you know, why don't you do it the right way? Right. We have an immigration system in the United States. Why don't you just do it the right way? Well, unfortunately, in this country, we have, with the context of immigration, we have a broken immigration system. And everybody realizes that, right? Where if you are in this country illegally, you know, and in our cases, you know, at no fault of our own, we didn't make the decision to jump on a plane or, you know, to cross the border, you know, and we thank our parents for, you know, wanting a better life. Um, but you have to, it's called a three-year bar and a 10-year bar where you have to, to apply for citizenship. You can't be in the United States illegally and apply for citizenship. You must go back to your country of origin. Um, and if you've been in the United States for more than 180 days or for less than 180 days, then you have what's called the three-year bar ban, where you have to be in your country of origin for three years and then you can apply. And then if you've been in the U.S. for more than 185 days, which is not even a third of a year, um, you have a 10-year bar where you have to go back to your country of origin for 10 years and then you apply, you know, we're getting to a point in, you know, the history of this world where, you know, things are so ugly, 
right now. They're ugly right now around the world, you know, um, and we're seeing symptoms of it, you know, in other areas. You know, people can't go back to, you know, a country in the Middle East who is in a war, you know, Honduras, for example, who, you know, it's very unstable economically, um, you know, refugees who have come from different countries who have applied for DACA and granted, you know, their very lives, their very livelihood, their humanity is at stake, you know. Um, so <clears throat> we really hope that the Supreme Court rules favorably with us. Um, but again, you know, a lot of people have lost hope. And the question is, you know, what are you going to do after or if the court rules unfavorably? Well, unfortunately, we don't have that luxury of thinking, what if not? Because what can you do without immigration reform and without, you know, our politicians, um, you know, passing some significant form of legislation that creates that pathway? So it really is incumbent upon our citizens and our allies to vote, but that's not enough to pressure our legislatures to make significant reform. Um, and, you know, I'm going to end with the point that elections matter. Elections matter, and so much is on the ballot in 2020. Um, so with that, um, I want to thank you, Dr. Juan Armando Rojas, and I want to thank you, Tanya and Barbara, for, you know, coming on here and doing what's not easy at all, which is sharing your very powerful and moving story. And we hope that the listeners, you know, those who learn something new, you know, understand that we're human and, you know, we want to succeed. And, you know, our success is also in the fabric of America, you know, um, and it's in the best interest of the U.S. to, you know, rule favorably because we pay taxes. We work in the medical profession. We are in every, we're on the, in, in the DNA of what makes up the society in terms of the economy and in terms of jobs, right, in terms of impact. So, Thank you all for being on today and talking about a very, uh, you know, raw subject. And this concludes the episode for today. Um, again, this is Ozama 2, and this segment is called Tipping the Scales. Um, you can listen to our previous two podcasts on Spotify and Apple Music and on any other platform. Uh, so with that, goodbye. Thank you, Jose.